I would absolutely do it again. Um, I believe in what this country represents. I believe in the freedom that we have here. I believe fighting for it is the right thing to do. And uh, protecting the people of the United States uh, was an honor and a privilege that I, I would absolutely do all over again. You're listening to Code Red with Secure America Now, the largest national security grassroots army. Hi, I am Alan Roth, president of Secure America Now. From the beginning of our organization, we have focused attention on the men and women who serve and have served in our military forces to secure our nation. Today, we are fortunate to have with us a veteran of the Iraq War, Tamala Karsh. Tamala served nearly 28 years in our armed forces. Uh, Tamala, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you were raised, what you did before you joined the military, and what caused you to join up? Sure. Um, I was born and raised in a small town in central Indiana, uh, Elwood, Indiana. And um, before I went in the military, I uh, uh, worked as a uh, graduate assistant at Butler University and did some uh, volunteering as a uh, uh, paramedic and uh, firefighter at Castleton Volunteer Fire Department. Then I moved down to South Texas, uh, finally found a teaching position, and uh, moved down to South Texas into Brownsville Independent School District and uh, was taught uh, special education and coached cross country and track. And uh, I always wanted to go in the military. My dad was a Korean veteran, uh, U.S. Marine Corps. My uh, grandparent. My, my grandfather and uh, my great uncle were both in the Army during World War II. And uh, pretty much I've had family in the military during every war since the Civil War. Uh, that's how my grandmother always told us. Um, I wanted to join the military to kind of step into the boots of those that came before me. Um, I've got a lot of friends that were veterans, Vietnam. My cousin was in Vietnam. Uh, another cousin that, uh, KIA in Afghanistan, the Argandog River Valley in 2010. Um, I kind of joined so that the younger generation in my family would not have to, um, I did find out actually until I got back from Iraq that uh, my cousin was in uh, Iraq and then Afghanistan. And uh, I got back and then he left and um, we lost him over there. But, uh, you know, he's my hero now, uh, as are all of the uh, men and women that have served past and present, uh, especially those that have paid the ultimate sacrifice. Amen. What roles did you fill in the military? 
Um, I, I started out in uh, an ordinance unit down in Brownsville, Texas as a reservist. And then our unit was deactivated as ordinance and uh, was changed to transportation. Is a uh, medium-wheeled vehicle company. Uh, 370th Transportation down in Brownsville, Texas, which is still there. Um, Ten years later, in 1999, I went active duty and uh, went to the Fort McCoy uh, Non-Commissioned Officers Academy, the NCOA, as cadre, uh, as an instructor, and was teaching basic non-commissioned officers course. Um, from there, uh, got promoted and went over to still at Fort McCoy at the Army Readiness or Army Reserve Readiness Training Center as a senior instructor for all of the ATARS courses and company trainers course, battalion commander's training course. Um, then my, my, my dad got sick with uh, uh, renal cell cancer and um, I was able to take a position as a inspector general for the U.S. Army and uh, received an assignment that was cl fairly close to home within 45 minutes. And uh, uh, military really, my leadership really worked with me so that when uh, mom needed needed us to be there, we were able to be there and um, spend some time with dad and let her, you know, be able to have a break and, and get out of the house for a little bit. We pretty much, my two brothers and I, Dennis and Dan, we pretty much every third day we would be there so that mom could have a couple hours off or, you know, spend the night so that she could go out and see a movie with friends or something. Um, but pretty much my uh, entire time in the military until my, my final unit was all teaching and training, either cadre as an inspector general um, I ended up back at the NCO Academy teaching first sergeant's course and battle staff, um, non-commissioned officer's course. I, I just kind of, I, I was a, you know, classroom teacher for special ed and, 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 uh, uh, coaching cross country and track before I went in the military. So it, it, you know, it just kind of kept my teaching and training going forward. Did you, um, were there any incidents um, during a military service, especially overseas, that stand out in your mind? Uh, yes. I had, uh, we lost seven of our soldiers over there. Um, two of them after we turned command over to the next unit. Um, uh, and... I had one in particular that really affected me because, uh, as I said, I worked as a volunteer firefighter before I uh, went in the military. And um, we had a specialist, Specialist Bailey, that was one of, one of our subordinate battalions that uh, they were in front of Taji, Bob Taji, Forward Operating Base. And... Uh, their convoy logistics patrol, the clip got hit uh, with an IED. Bailey was able to get uh, 
everybody out of the vehicle before it flipped and was trapped inside. And um, his his was especially hard to take because uh, being a firefighter and paramedic, you 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 know what you need to do. But when you're not right there on scene, you feel helpless. Um, felt like I was kind of drowning in quicksand, um, carrying everything that's going on. You know, uh, it caught fire, and uh, the ASP caught fire, and Bailey's still trapped inside, and everybody on the the clip was, you know, using all the fire extinguishers trying to get the fire out. And um, Taji was throwing down fire extinguishers. Um, and they just couldn't get it out. I called into Taji Fob to have them send out a truck, fire engine, which uh, they didn't want to do because of uh, fear of daisy chains, uh, IEDs that are connected that will take out first responders right? and uh, finally got the command to at least pull it up to the fence line, shove a hose through so that the guys could get the fire out. Um, but it was too late. Um, so I had to make a decision as to whether or not the uh, clip was going to move forward, whether um, part of the clip would stay at Taji and the rest of them move forward up to QS or to bring the whole clip home. And considering what they had just been through, um, I brought them home. Um, had them checked out by combat medics. Uh, took them off the road for a couple weeks so that you know they could be debriefed. And uh, got another unit in there in their place to uh, cover the convoys, uh, basically to make sure that they weren't on the road again before they were ready. Uh, so they they brought their soldier home. And um, just kind of felt helpless at that time and, and kind of took it personally uh, as a leader. Um, you don't want to, you know, you tell them, you know, you're there to make sure they all come home safe. And, uh, but yet you have to, you know, have them look to their left, to their right, forward and rear. Uh, realizing that uh, some of us may not come home. So he was the second one we lost over there. And uh, it was it was a tough one for everybody. Yeah, yeah understandably. Um, gee, was this your first trip overseas? Um, was going to Iraq, am I correct? Is that, was that your first trip? Uh, first trip over there, um, I had previously, when I was in the reserves, uh, had gone down to Central America, um, 97, uh, 97, I was in police and then 98, uh, I was in the first combat zone in El Salvador, uh, when the guerrillas were fighting. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was actually my first time in a combat zone. Uh-huh. What, what did you feel like just in, just as 
a normal human being. How, how did you, um, what was the experience like setting foot in Iraq? Um, I remember before I left, people asking me, are you scared? And I just tell them, yeah, you got to be scared. Uh, you know, it's the only way to, to be on your toes and, and do the right thing and take care of your soldiers. Um, you got to have some fear. Um, otherwise, you get cocky, you slip up. So, yeah, I, I was scared. Um, I remember the, the, I think it was the second night there, we, we, uh, I was stationed in Balad, and Balad's nickname was Mortaritaville because we got hit so often um, with incoming mortars. And I remember the second night I, we got hit and uh, finally got out to the bunker. And, yeah, I wasn't low crawling that bunker. I, w I was running. You know, I, um, it was kind of a shock. It, it rocked the hooch. It, you know, knocked me out of my bunk. It, it was close. It was heavy. You know, Seeing the sky light up and having sea rams miss some of those coming in, it, it you know, you were taught, taught, told about sea rams and how, it, you know, they're, they zero in on the in incoming, they'll take them out before they hit. Well, no, <laughs> doesn't always happen. Rarely. <laughs> Pretty rarely happened. Right. And I think I only saw, saw a couple of them get hit while the whole time we were over there. We had quite a few that hit inside the water. When you were when you were over there, did you find it difficult staying in touch with friends and families back home? Um, there were a few of us that uh, there was this. Uh, it's called Buffalo. Um, there'd be about six or seven of us, six to eight of us, go in together on a six hundred dollar bill to buy this uh, wireless, um, well, not really wireless. It, you know, we had these huge poles up outside our hooch um, to get a connection on our, our computers. Um, but uh, I remember my mom's friend was, uh, uh, we were talking and uh, sirens went off and, and I said, I got to go. <laughs> I kind of left her hanging and, uh, got back and she was still on there just waiting, you know, but, uh, I didn't let that happen again. I, I, you know, but yeah, we, we were able to keep in touch as much as we could. Um, you had to be careful of, you know, uh, for security reasons, what information you gave out. So you just kept it light and, you know, how y'all doing, you know, I'm okay. Uh, just kind of, you know, check up once in a while. And, um, but we were able to do that. We had, uh, AT&T had, uh, uh, phones set up that we could go in and, uh, comms was not very good on that. You know, you, you hear them say something and then, uh, you know, there'd be this pause and then you'd, you'd answer and then they, they wouldn't realize that there was a, a, 
pause in there and and they would try to talk again. So here you were talking over each other. Mm-hmm. So that made it kind of tough. Um, care packages were nice to get. Um, they kind of kept you going, you know, pictures from home. Uh, I pretty much had pictures and cards all over my hooch to kind of keep me going. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, you know, it was, it was good. I, uh, I was a uh, NCOIC, non-commissioned officer in charge for uh, uh, the convoys moving um, moving from Kuwait up to Q West, west over to Ramadi, and east into Crete. And um, if we had any special ops that were further out, they we would usually drop the loads at a FOB, and they would come in and pick it up. So, um, you know, I worked with convoys the whole time. I worked pretty much graveyard shift from the, uh, I was there before the, the convoys went out until they got back home, uh, the next day or got into a safe haven that night. And, um, we had some instances where, um, we had a couple of lieutenants that were, uh, it's their first time out on a convoy, and they were trying to tell the convoy commander uh, and truck commanders, you know, how to run their convoys. And uh, they got up to Key West, and they were supposed to run. They were supposed to rest overnight. And uh, two nights in a row, I lost a couple guys because the, the lieutenant on each one of those convoys had uh, uh, ordered them to turn off their comms, uh, they dropped their loads, they got back in line, got back on the road because they wanted to sleep in their own hooches that night and uh, got hit coming through Samara Bypass, which was the uh, deadliest area going up to Key West. Um, you know, you no sooner get get through get through in an area before they'd be laying new IEDs out there. So um, whenever we had anybody going up that far north, they were scheduled to rest overnight. And uh, those two nights they did, and then we ended up losing a couple soldiers. Hmm. So that, uh, needless to say, those lieutenants uh, didn't run on another convoy, so... When you came home, what did you find to be the most difficult thing as far as transitioning back into civilian life? Um, I was stationed out in, uh, at Los Alamitos Joint Forces Training Base in Southern California, uh, about 35 miles southeast of L.A., and I was about 10 minutes from Disneyland, so you could see the fireworks go off every night from my backyard. Um, so that was kind of rough getting used to. Um, having planes and things flying over, uh, when they go low, you, you know, you, in Iraq, when they, they went out, you know, if one or two of them went out, you knew it was just a, a, a recon mission. If, if they were, had, you know, 
four, five, six of them go out, you knew they were going out to hit something. So, you know, they, they flew low, they, they rattled everything. And, um, so when I got home that, you know, that was tough to get used to, um, being out around, uh, crowds was, was extremely difficult. Um, the, uh, trying to find something, uh, you know, you're going for a tube of toothpaste and it was like, it came back and there was like, you know, instead of having a choice of, you know, five or six types of toothpaste, you, you had like 30 types in each brand, you know, so you just wanted a tube of toothpaste, you know, you wanted the one you always used and, and you'd have to search for it. So, uh, I couldn't deal with crowds very much when I got back, so I usually grocery shop about 2 a.m., and um, so there was nobody in there, pretty much, and uh, do better with that now. I got a service dog named Char, so she gets she gets me through uh, pretty much can go at normal times now, um, but yeah, that was, that was pretty hard to get used to. Uh, yeah, sure. My family was... Uh, very uh, uh, grew up hugging hugging friends and family, and I I remember when I got off the plane, I I didn't want to be touched. Um, so it was, it was kind of hard because everybody wanted to give you a hug and welcome you home, and you kind of just didn't want to didn't want to feel that. You know, you were. I mean, you took care of your troops over there, but you kind of had a disconnect in a way as well um because you knew what you might have to deal with um i don't i don't know if that makes sense yeah it um, does it does um do you still stay in touch with people that you served with uh yeah i do um i uh work with a group uh, volunteer with a group called Healing Warrior Hearts out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, we have uh, pre-veterans retreats uh, about once a month, and they're either up in Milwaukee or they're down in Houston. We're trying to get one here in Indianapolis area this summer. But uh, the, the regular retreat is for Healing Warrior Hearts is for any veteran dealing with any anything from childhood trauma through combat. We have one for couples. Uh, we have one for uh, the LGBT, LGBT community, and we have another for military sexual trauma. Um, that has kind of become my new purpose for, for going on, uh, being able to help other vets um, come to terms with... Uh, uh, Moral injury, um, emotional trauma. Um, it's you know I, I I'll have it on my Facebook page if if uh, somebody calls having a hard time I'll talk to them about it. I I had a friend that uh, uh, in the command and we went with a subordinate unit when we went to Iraq, one sixty fourth Corps support group and. Uh, 
uh, with the 63rd Regional Readiness Command. So we went with that subordinate unit, and uh, there were four of us from the command that uh, deployed with the subordinate unit. And uh, one of the gals I was with was having some issues. I talked to her about it, and she she went to the Healing Warrior Hearts, and and then she started staffing. So I I we've kept in contact. I uh, I just saw her a couple months ago down in Texas. Went down there for a couples retreat uh, to staff, and uh, it, it was great being able to to you know reminisce and and talk and. Uh, it kind of, you just can't, you know, talk to anybody about it. You know, it's, it's got to be somebody that's been there, somebody that understands what you've been through, um, that went through it with you. And uh, it kind of just brings solace when you're able to, to you know, get some of that stuff off your chest that maybe you've been holding on to. Yeah, it, it sounds like um, extremely important work that you're doing. And we find a lot of vets who, after their service, after transitioning back into, quote, normal life, who do uh, volunteer work or end up working for organizations that only those, as you just said, who have experienced the same type of experiences that they have, the people who are having problems, can address them in a way that uh, the person who hasn't experienced them can. If you share with us, and the, not right now, but just send us an email um, about your organization, we will help publicize so that vets would know. I actually have a nephew who lives in Indianapolis who is a veteran, uh, served in Afghanistan. Um, but uh, so if you would like us to uh, shed some light on this organization, uh, just send us the information and we'll help promote it. I uh, really appreciate that because uh, we are a 501 Chapter 3 uh, mm -hmm. organization. Uh, I'm on the board for the Starfish Foundation, which we do the fundraising to so that we can actually pay for um, these retreats for the veterans to go. Right. And it, it's all, you know, fundraising and, and donations. Um, right. So, yeah, I'll, I'll get that mailed out to you and uh, uh, right. send you the link to the site. Okay. And we'll, we'll include it in our emails and other uh, material that we produce um, and you'll get some attention and people will be able to afford themselves of services that you guys provide. Uh, in wrapping up, I would just like to ask you, um, if you had to do it over again, would you serve in the United States military? In a red hot minute. Why? Um, I believe in this country. Um, I was raised in a family that served this country. I think that it's it's the right thing to do. There's only about one 
maybe less than 1% of people that, that uh, voluntarily serve. Uh, we do have an all-volunteer military today. Um, it, it's not for everyone, but I would absolutely do it again. Um, I believe in what this country represents. I believe in the freedom that we have here. I believe fighting for it is the right thing to do. And uh, protecting the people of the United States uh, was an honor and a privilege that I, I would absolutely do all over again. It is volunteers like you with attitudes like yours that make this country a great country. And, um, and it is the reason why we focus a light on you folks, on the experiences the, uh, that you did on behalf of us all. And uh, we thank you. Um, uh, I, I hope God blesses you to continue on in the valuable services that you continue to provide. Thank you. Yeah, well, it, it was an honor and a privilege. Well, uh, fantastic. We will send you uh, the link to the podcast after we um, after we put it together. Um, and uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to share your experiences with us. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Take care. God bless. Thanks for listening to the Code Red Podcast. Be sure to click subscribe to stay up to date and be the first to hear about our future podcast. You can also find and subscribe to the Code Red Podcast on Podbean, Spotify, Google Play, and YouTube.